Welcome to Telltale, the podcast where marketers can learn from interviews with fantastic storytellers. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 14 of the Telltale Podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Sanders. With us as always is Brittany Dreghorn. How are you going, Brit? Better than I've ever been. And, and can you tell the audience why? Tell oh, the no reason why. in oh. particular. But we have a really great guest here today That's as well, right. which is good. Yep. I thought that was why. So, oh no, it's yeah. just every reason. With us today, we are very excited to have Queensland's Chief Entrepreneur, Mark Selby. Mark, welcome to the Telltale Podcast. Thank you. <laughs> I'm nervous about it now. Telltale. Yeah, yeah. I think the I think the title tells me the story. That was a, this is a tr- it's like truth or dare. That's truth or no, we're not we're not quite that drastic, but but um we're close. We're close. Mark Salby, if you haven't met him, is Queensland's chief entrepreneur, and he's also the former managing director and founder of Blue Sky Alternative Investments. And we're actually sitting in the precinct in Fortitude mm. Valley, which is a startup hub. What happened? How did this happen? Uh, the precinct, or yeah. how did I end up yeah, leaving no, Blue Sky? No, so, no, well, I mean, the well, they sort of, well, they sort of all interact. They sort of all interact, actually. So at Blue Sky, we saw, um, we sort of, we're at the coalface there, so we saw all these startups and things coming through naturally in Queensland. It was in 2014, and and I remember talking to Elaine about it and said, "There's something's changed," and it was a natural thing. It was there was no sort of government behind it or anything else. It was just this natural sort of uprising of entrepreneurship. And we always think of it as being a bit of a rebellion or a revolution against the sort of institutionalisation of corporates and everything else. So, and it wasn't necessarily age-driven either. It was right across all sort of demographics and, and regions. And, and so we saw this happening. And so we got Harvard to do a report for us and just said, can you... And the government got behind it and the universities got behind it and said, where do we sit? And we were... Australia was terrible and we were horrific. So we're the worst in Australia at Queensland. But it was lagging data. So we were seeing a change coming. We also knew what the other states looked like as well. So once we saw that and we saw, we thought Queensland had a chance, we just had this sense that Queensland had a chance to sort of be our own version of the valley or our own startup hub for Asia. And because typically the big population centres can't do it. So it tends to be sort of one of the sort of second tier states in the US or whatever, like Austin, Texas and Boulder, Colorado, and even Silicon Valley is a bit of a hole to be honest. And so. So there's reasons, there were sort of these elements there, and when we saw the, um, what it was happening in the US, and we got Josh Lerner from Harvard to give us some things to do, and out of that, you know, be careful what seeds you sow, because uh, one of his top three recommendations was to copy Israel and Chile and to put together this office of chief entrepreneur, and also to have startup hubs, and that you need a platform to express these opportunities. You need a sort of a mothership to bring everybody together. And, um, and Silicon Valley sort of does that. In fact, that's sort of attractive to the money, but in this case, you needed a, a, a platform. And so there were all these recommendations and effectively that seed was sown. 70% of the Advanced Queensland program, all these things you're seeing have come off the back of that report, including, as it turns out, for me. Um, yeah, which is sort of still an accident because I wasn't thinking about uh, retiring from Blue Sky seriously until my wife said something to me in June last year around our boys and I was and, I, you know, and reminded me of why we had gone on that journey to change our life and, and it was to be around those boys at the right time and there were some of the things going on with, that we thought would make sense and the, and the business was flying. So it's a funny thing when you, um, when you retire from a business that you founded and particularly if it's listed, everybody assumes that it must be going bad. But of course, as a founder, the reason that you can go is because things are going well. 
but uh, the markets don't get that. And anyway, the business is much bigger already than it was when I was there. So I think I probably um, stopped being the ball and chain and let the real talent take over. And, right. and so now I end up in this role, which is a you know for me is a social good role. And and I wasn't you know there were two people that they were interested in taking on this role, and there was no sort of application process, and I didn't know anything about it. I just got asked, and I actually said no. I said no, I'm too tired and. Uh, and then a sort of sequence of events led to me, led to them needing me to do it. And so I said, yeah, okay, look, I'll help for a year. Um, I'm good at structure and startups and uh, you know, very passionate about the change that we can make. And that I'd love to see Queensland own this. So, you know, so I unleashed and do it for a year. I finished on October 12th, so I'm in my last quarter, which is my investment quarter. Right. So this is the piece to attract investment to Queensland. Mark, have the other states implemented these roles as well, or is Queensland definitely... Yeah, no, Queensland's first. Yeah, yeah, Queensland's first. And all of, in fact, all of the advanced Queensland programs, you know, I mean, people sort of, some people like and some people don't, but it's all great stuff. And it's all, what I like about it is, it's, it's what it should be, it's catalysing. So it's all small bets. So we're a small bet. But I reckon we're getting more done with our six people in here than, you know, most government departments probably. And government knows that. Like, they've, they're, they're smart, or they've spun this out and said... Now, we can't possibly say the things you're going to say or do the things you're going to do. So we'll just fund you, put you on the outside and not own you and just, you know, please, please do good. And, um, and that's what's happening and it's feeding on itself. But the, because the tsunami's already there, we're just really, you know, giving it a bit more impetus. It's funny because you've created this position that now cannot be undone. Like you said, you have 30 minute slots and they're like back to back. So what yeah. are they going to do? They're yeah, going yeah. to be like, and just continue the role. Which is, no, no, the, and the role, and there's somebody that will be appointed after. But then we are, I don't know, we don't know who that is. And then, and then there'll be someone else. But there's an evolution there. So you tend to have a, you know, an office that stays stable and then have a, a one or two or three chief entrepreneurs that are, that are different. And I'm not a tech person. And um, so, you know, hopefully we'll fill that gap. And then after a while, though, you end up with someone who uh, has done all those things, has had a break and has the time and has that second wind that they can put back in, but also is better at, you know, really, or has a demonstrated track record of dealing and getting the most out of the government beast. And that's beneficial for them and for us. I think the one-year term is ideal as well, especially when you're working with startups. Like, you just can't have somebody in there who's always giving the same advice. They yeah. need to really mix it up. No, that's a good point. I mean, I think already... Like, I'm still covering new ground, but for sure... I'm not talking about you. You can stay forever. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no but it's true. I was about to say, Bruce, just bullshit you out, mate. No, no, but, no, but I, agree, I agree with you because what happens is, is your story gets old and you've got to keep finding... It's like with your kids, like you've sometimes got to get someone else to say something to your kids in a way that, that they connect with. And so for sure, some people will connect with my story and the things that I've learned, but there'll be others that will connect with someone else better. And we knew that when we did the regional tour that we did back in March, we took you know, four completely different people. We took Stephen Phillips, who you know, sold We Are Hunted to Twitter, he's a music guy, he's, he's all regional people. Steve Baxter, obviously, who's well known. Um, we took Patrice Brown, who's a really tough, amazing lady, just an amazing, 55 years old, and I shouldn't like be telling people that, but you're 55, Patrice. And, <laughs> uh, and, but, but, you know, Telstra Business Woman, the entrepreneur at 55, and, um, and from a tough upbringing, and then Lucas Patchett, who was our token city slicker with his ponytail from, from um, <laughs> Orange Sky. And if you were sitting in the audience, you know, then pretty much there's no gaps. Like, there's someone there that you can connect with by age or gender or background or expertise, whatever. So we did that on purpose, and I think this... You know, we need to have someone cycling through that's different each time, that's telling a different story for a year. But eventually you want some stability because there's going to be a moment where 
we need to be able to unleash, unlock the beast of government more effectively. And to do that, you've got to know how to do that. And I don't know how to do that. I've we've had I've had no exposure at all. And um, and you know, there's lots of people in there trying to do good. They're trying to find ways to help. They know the limitations of the machinery of government, and so it doesn't take much to sort of recalibrate the state if you can do that. I'm glad you talked about storytelling before because Telltale is a storytelling podcast and it's at the core of brand or business in general. I'd like to shift across to something about Blue Sky and I recently heard you talk about how Blue Sky had a no dickhead policy. Yeah. Tell us about the culture that that brought with it. Yeah, so it was hard to do because also, um, like, you know, they're not always obvious. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, so look, we had, I mean, the story I tell around that is that broadly speaking, I mean, I'm sort of paraphrasing it, or all the, st- the stats a bit, but essentially the first five years we had 50% turnover per year. And then the next five years we had basically none. We had 2% or 3%, which is sort of natural attrition. Uh, not people dying, but so, you know, because they're working so hard. So, so um, but we, you've got to think about, like, when you're building a business, um, you've got to have, you're, you're solving a particular problem. And for us, we needed a particular culture to solve for our problem. And our problem is this, is that say Brittany joins and she starts a venture capital fund and she manages to get some money into that, then all the people that are putting money into that fund or that particular deal that you did want to know that you've got your own money in. They want to know that you're going to be there from the start to the finish, through all the good and the bad, until the end. And so then we set up a whole bunch of things, which Harvard gave us some clues on of things that worked. And it's not the things that worked for bankers. And it was all no sign-on bonuses, um, don't care what your CV says, will you put your own money into the funds, what's your net wealth, how much will you put in, um, and how do we make sure, you know, there's no, there's no corporate hierarchy for you to climb and for 10-year funds. So you're going to go from being 32 to 42, which is important times of your life to build out your career, and you're locking in for at least that 10 years. We want you to, so how do we build a culture that solves for that? So one of the first things you've got to do is find people um, that have um, no need for uh, corporate hierarchy or any of that sort of title stuff. So we had no titles. And you end up having them with an org chart to show people that this is how your business works, but you actually don't have them. We had no offices, we got rid of car parks. Um, we don't pay people very much in the salary department, but if they're here for long enough, then they start to get equity. So we had we had a remuneration structure that was modeled around Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is salary and super, equity, dividend, performance fees on the funds, performance fees discretionary, so you've got this sort of triangle, and they had to work their way up that. So early on, we're gonna make sure you've got enough money to feed your family and put them in school and stuff, but that's all. You're not gonna solve your needs from that. You're gonna solve it, then you'll get equity, and then you'll get dividends, and we want you to get dividends off the equity, which means the business is going well, because the business has to go well to sustain the funds and the people. And then at the top of that tree, then you have this performance fund thing. And you only got that at the end. So one of the key things we did on the funds is if you leave during, what a lot of other companies do is they have this complicated formula that gives you a percentage of the, the fund return when you, if you leave because you've worked there for six of the ten, well, we go, we, you get zero. It stays in the pot and the people that stay get all the money. So you know that going in. So you know you're signing up for ten years, so you don't sign up for ten years unless you know you can do it. It stops people from saying stuff that they don't mean. And it took us a little while. We did some other things. We had, because um, we had people with amazing CVs. Have I talked to you about the coffee story? I don't know. I've probably heard I'll, it. I'll, I'll tell it quickly. So it, yeah. we had coffee with Mark, and I stopped hiring people, which was a good start. And then, um, so say Brittany wanted to hire someone, she'd find the people she wanted, we'd do, she'd do the remuneration, lock them in, love you to death, 
um, you're in, now you're going to have coffee with Mark. And I'd take them through an hour and a half discussion through the history of the company and stuff. And I'd get to the end of it. And I'd say, Brittany, you've got this amazing CV with Golden Sack, Merrill Lynch, all these amazing places. This is an amazing CV. Only you deep down know whether uh, you did all the things in here, whether you were the person that in the moment won that deal, won that moment. Uh, and if that's you, then you'll do really well at Blue Sky. But if it's not, this culture will find you out. These people will find you out. And 18 months, two years in, we'll all know. You'll know, we'll know. And then when you leave and Macquarie call and say, we're thinking about hiring Brittany, um, and they're going to ask what you're like, and I'm going to tell them that you were shit. <laughs> and there's this moment, right, straight away, where you know, you certainly know when they're not with you. And, and interestingly, it wasn't a huge sample set, but 70% of those people did not take the job then. It's great. You really put the responsibility back on them. There's not many people it's not who a risk would have that conversation. Which is the risk-free option. Ten years, I'm coming in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what we say to people now is... Um, is when they're joining Blue Sky, I said, this can be your last job. Like, it's actually, it's a bit like sort of trading houses. It's expensive to do. Like, it's, there's no currency. It takes you 18 months to settle in, all that sort of stuff, and you may not like the people. If we do a good job, so the argument we make is we say that Blue Sky is your platform to be the best person you can be and take on the world. And we'll back your ideas if we need to. And so we use that as a platform, and then it's up to them to make the most of what they can do. And they can build a business within there with 20 people and be in charge, um, but they've got to be good. And once we started doing all those things, uh, we had to solve, the other thing we had to do is culturally, we had to solve people's need for achievement. Because that still doesn't go away, especially with high performance. So we do physical and mental scholarships that will pay for anything you want to do that takes you outside your comfort zone and improves you as a person and builds stronger bonds across the group, which is the Venture Program. So I'm just rolling out the same tricks, right? And this is important because people can then go, look, we had 16 people go and do nine peaks across Nepal over 16 days or something like that. And with some clients and other people as well. Not just corporate trips, but really, it was hard. They all came back, reflective, and they'd learned a lot, and they've achieved something. So you have to still fill it out. But of course, we're still growing. Like, there are 100 people now, and probably they'll be, a, if they do that right, and I think they will, that'll be an ASX top 50 or 20 company. It'll be a multi-billion dollar company with 500 people. I, I had a lot of people come to me and say, um, when we had 50 people, I said, oh, I missed the boat. You know, and I said, I said, this will be a business that you'll be able to say to people, you're in the first 100 people. And I go, wow. And so, it's true. And so, if you believe that it's true, and I do believe that, then they go, oh, wow, that's an interesting story. Because you get that at Google. You, I mean, we get people come in here that say, you know, I was in the first 1,000 people on Microsoft. And you go, wow, you must be amazing. <laughs> you know, first one so I think Blue Sky could be that sort of business. Sure. I have a question, Mark, around leading the strategy as a founder, now that you've removed yourself. Like, yes. what you were just talking about with that... Um, uh, going and doing different professional development or personal development. I know you led that because you've done a lot of that yourself. You've split yeah. the English channel and different things like that. What, what do you think about leaving as a founder and keeping that uh, company culture? Is it possible? Does it change? Well, it will change and it needs to evolve because I was insane and I was driving stuff and, you know, you're the, you're like the business needed to evolve. The, th the key thing there is to, you got to let that happen naturally. There'll be mistakes that get made, but mostly it'll be, it's all about on net, like on net will it be better off? And I'm sure that the business is better off for not having me in there. Um, so around the, you know, the, um, the culture of the business and you know, whether the team decide to stick with those, with those rules, I think the key thing to hand across is an owner's mentality. And the reality is, is that in there, there are 20 people that, that own each other and own that business. And so for sure, in fact, I think with me going, 
they really felt that obligation and ownership of the of all the things they were doing because they were there through all that. Like I didn't build this a bit. I started the business, but reality is is that you know Rob Shan and Tim Wilson and Alex McNabb and Kim Morrison and uh, Vaughan Henry and Elaine Stead and all these mate Les Les and all these people they built and Andrew Champion. There's all these amazing people that built this business. It's their business as well, and that's the nice thing about being listed is that ownership does get spread. You know, I own seven and a half percent of the company today. I used to own 100 percent. I sold a few shares, but we own more in the shares than we do in anything else. So the net, so we, I got diluted a lot. It's not my company anymore. It's our company, and for sure, there's 20 at least 20 people there with the owners mentality, and that's the key. And then from that, there'll be evolution, and they'll take the business in a different direction, which it definitely needed. That's actually a fascinating model. Um, a lot of the audience that listens to this podcast are either marketers or small business owners, and you can obviously tell a good yarn. What advice would you have for that kind of audience around telling their story? Yeah, I mean, storytelling, Pete. I mean, you've got to know it. So you've got to believe in your story first. And so what happens is lots of people come in and pitch and tell you stuff, and it's all motherhood statements, and I, you, know, you can tell that it's not really their thing. And so to build conviction around your story, you've actually got to build conviction around yourself, especially as the founder and if you're the person driving all this stuff. Um, you can't sell something you don't believe in. If you don't believe in yourself and you can't sell yourself, that's a pretty bad start. <laughs> and I would say ultimately leads to classic people getting 18 months, two years in and starting to fall apart. So I'm always really interested in, in sort of exploring yourself. I always talk about the reason. So what's the reason you're doing something? And, and you've got to really drill into what the reason might be. And so Heidi and I had a line, which was only a tagline, which was... Um, Heidi's my wife, obviously, uh, financial freedom by 45, which wasn't about being rich. It was about that the boys were going to be teenagers then. Uh, we wanted to, and what, what, what we knew, because I, I worked for a great family in Alabama, and they had taught me that money doesn't make you happy. It just gives you freedom to do good or bad things. <laughs> and so, and you know, we, were gonna, we wanted that to be a sort of force for good. And so, um, so we had this goal, and I just never lost sight of that goal. And then within the, within the, that doesn't mean making money at any cost. So the other side of that, there are also sort of storylines, taglines that went with that. So I had little, I always visualised um, being able to walk down Eagle Street and for all the, the good people, because like, you do meet some get bad people, but for all the good people, I'll meet them on the street and I always better look them in the eye and they would always, they would see me and know that I always did the right thing. And so, so then you've got to suddenly make money and build a business that, um, that is going to be seen as always doing the right thing. You can make mistakes, but you just can't do the wrong thing. And so, so little things, so even when I, so little things, like when I retired from the business and we announced, we put our results out, two minutes later we put out that I was retired. And then immediately all these rumors went through the market which were disgusting and all this other stuff happened. But I didn't, I, had, I didn't wait and hold that back for a month or two and sell a bunch of shares into it and stuff. I didn't sell any shares into it. I just waited, I did it full story for a week. And then I waited to see if anyone was going to call me to see if we didn't really have any money to see if we'd, they'd buy some shares. And sure enough, some institutions called me on the Friday and said, Mark, we trust you, we believe you, um, we'll buy your shares. One of them said, we'll buy all your shares. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to do that, but I will sell a block of shares to you and then to other people, groups that have backed us. I'll sell them to you uh, whilst I'm a director so everyone can see it and I'll state publicly that I'm keeping five million shares and sitting on them. And did it all while I was director and no one does that. And it's the most obvious thing to do in the world because it's not about being greedy. And I had a rule, which I would only ever sell shares to people at a price I thought they'd make money out of me. It's the really simple stuff because you've got equity and lots of things and shares is one, but your reputation is the most important. And you want to be able to sleep at night. I wanted to be able to go away and sleep at night. So there's all sorts of things like that that we would do 
Um, they're easy filters. You need filters to stop yourself from doing stupid things when you're under pressure. We've built lots of filters. Right, okay. We have reached near the end, except there's one little thing. A critical point in the podcast. And we would like to know, Mark, what is the biggest white lie or just a really good clanger that you've told? I actually know one that I'm hoping it is, but anyway. No, no, but I know know a lie that I told that was a blatant lie, more than a white (laughs) lie, is is I remember, uh, which changed the course of our business, actually, in my life. And... um, and I, it was when I put my application in for the, is this the one? Yeah, put the, yeah, right. yeah, I just thought of it then. Yeah. So I put the application into Harvard to join their private equity and venture capital course and said that we had 25 million under management uh, and that was a forecast and uh, we had six, I think. <laughs> and so, and I got in and they said, I remember them saying to me, Josh saying to me, you know, we wanted to have a startup and we couldn't believe you only had 25 million. And I reckon if I had six, I think that probably I wouldn't have got into that course. I would never have met Josh Lerner never would have got the idea, well, I don't know, probably would never have got the idea to build Blackstone in Australia because that was what he, he'd done some work on. I wouldn't have understood alternative assets. Um, so many things would not have happened. So I think that's a good lie to tell, and nobody got hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very glad you told it because that was the one I was hoping. Yeah, right, <laughs> okay. Because it's a great lesson. Uh, I, I, I'm a huge fan of begging for forgiveness later, even though it didn't seem like you had to. Well, to be honest, I was always sure that we'd do it. Yeah. Like I, so I never thought that this was fluffing around. I just thought, well, that's what we'll get to. That was my forecast. And I'm like, we'll get there. It's no problem. I'll put that on there. But you they get... must know now. I mean, you Oh, of course. It. Yeah, I told him. Yeah, yeah, I told him. Because um, what happened was he said to me um, one day, he said, I can't believe you only had 25 million under management. I said, oh, mate, we didn't even have that. <laughs> <laughs> we only had six. And I just look of horror. And he said, you mean you lied on the Harvard application? I said, of course. You know, whatever it takes. It's really a lie. Yeah, yeah. It's forecast. It's yeah, not a lie. It's forecast. Yeah, what happened, Josh? It's all right. <laughs> Mark Salby, thank you for being on the Telltale Podcast today. Thank you very much. Brittany, as always, thanks for joining us every week. And remember, folks, tell your tale. Telltale is part of the Content Division Podcast Network. You can subscribe on iTunes or stream it from the contentdivision.com.au forward slash podcast. Then you won't.